Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. The families of domestic violence victims call for stronger laws and a new register to help protect those victims. Jennifer was 24 years old and when her life was taken from her, she was a daughter, a sister, an auntie, and above all, a loving mother to her two children. Also tonight, as the country deals with the rising cost of living, high-earning civil servants earning €150,000 and above are about to see their pay go back up. The government is defending the move. Is the timing great? No, it's not. But the legal advice that is very, very clear. Uh, we're a government who will stand over uh, the agreements that we make. And at least 1,000 people are dead following a powerful earthquake in Afghanistan. We fear that there's people trapped um, in buildings and uh, that the death toll uh, may well rise. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. First tonight, the brother of a young murder victim has given his backing to proposals to create a domestic violence register. The register would make information available about anyone who has a domestic violence conviction similar to the sex offenders register. Jason Poole's sister, Jennifer, was murdered by her ex-partner in Finglas in Dublin last year. Gavin Murphy had a previous conviction for seriously assaulting an ex-girlfriend. Well, I'm joined now in studio by Jason Poole, brother of Jennifer Poole, who, as we said, was murdered last year. Sinn Féin TD, Pauline Tully, and Fianna Foyle TD, Jim O'Callaghan. Just to warn you, you may find parts of this conversation upsetting. Uh, and I want to start with you, Jason, and thank you for coming in uh, to the studio to speak to us this evening about Jennifer and what she went through and the changes that you want to see in legislation um, off the back of the awful um, events that occurred in Jennifer's life. Tell me about her. What was she like? She was your, she was your baby sister. She was, yeah. Uh, Jennifer was 24 years of age um, and had two children. Um, she was a loving, caring mother who'd done everything for her kids. She was part of a very close uh, family. Um, we did everything together as, as a family. She worked as a carer in the local community. She gave up her time and volunteered with some of her projects and youth clubs in the community. Um, she had empathy, you know, something that you, you, you would only expect from your sister. Um, she loved life, she loved music, she loved to dance. Um, she was heavily involved in our GAA club um, and played camogie for years as a young child growing up with her sister, Claire. Um, she was an all-rounder. You know, there was, there was no faults in her. And I know you don't find faults in your own family, but even now you can't say there was anything that Jennifer ever did wrong um, throughout her 24 years of life. 
And it was only 24 years because she did meet um, Gavin Murphy. Uh, how did she come to meet him? Uh, she met Gavin Murphy through um, a neighbour um, of, of Gavin's, was a relative um, that lived next door to Jennifer and that's how they met. And it was through lockdown as well. So, you know, it, was, it wasn't like we, we'd seen very much of, of Gavin. Um, as a family because Jennifer was working in a nursing home. So her, her, I suppose, her time with us was very limited because she didn't want to be spreading coronavirus and stuff like that. So she was very conscious of that. She'd often come into the house with the mask on and the apron to collect the kids after school. Um, so we didn't get to see a lot of uh, Gavin in the short period that they were together. Um, and what we did see, we, we weren't happy with. Mm. As a family, did you know or did you suspect that Jennifer's relationship was an abusive one? From very early on, um, we knew that there was something that wasn't right. Um, Jennifer was a very outgoing, happy person. She went to her, you know, her, her football um, or, or camogie. She went to the, the gym. And when she met Gavin, all of that stopped. The, the conversations that we would have had with her kind of stopped. Um, the, the regular visits to the house, you know, on, on a number of occasions today, my mum often say to her, you know, there's no point you even not living here because we see it that often, you know, but all of that kind of stopped. You know, the house key vanished from her car keys. Um, there, was, there was lots of telltale signs um, within our personality, within the, our children's personalities, but also, the, I suppose, the context of the marks and the bruises and the wounds that we would have seen and, and challenged. Um, but Jennifer was a, was a very good liar in the end of it all. Um, she kept everything to herself because she didn't want to create a fuss. She, she thought she could deal with this herself. Um, she'd buy makeup to cover her wounds so that us as our family and our friends wouldn't notice. Um, but we do know that on a number of occasions that Jennifer was, was seriously injured um, by, by Gavin um, in the family, in her family home. And it was only after her murder, after her tragic death, that you really ex got to understand, I suppose, the extent of the fear that she lived under living with Gavin Murphy. Yeah, like Jennifer's day was, was very set in stone for her. Um, she, you know, if she came into the family home, the phone would be gone and it'd be, it'd be Gavin wanting to know where she is, what she's doing. It was like the controlling part of, of her relationship. Um, if she went to collect her, her, her payments, um, he'd be with her. There was a financial aspect to it as well. Um, and you didn't really see Jennifer without Gavin um, on occasions, but he never interacted with us as a family. He might sit out in the car, he'd sit in the front garden. Um, if Jennifer left from one room to walk to another room, he'd follow her. So there was that type of control that he had on her. Um, and it was something that we noticed and confronted Jennifer with. But as I said, Jennifer was, was a very nice person, quiet person and kept her personal stuff to herself and didn't really share that. Even though we challenged her and we'd ask her, you know, how did you get a busted lip? You know, she always had a story and always had something that, you know, could be believable. And that's why I think it's important that for, for other people who are out there that may be in situations like Jennifer to seek help, you know, don't keep it to yourself. Talk to your family, talk to your friends, neighbours, whoever it may be, seek support. Go to one of the local uh, Garda stations, mm. go to Women's Aid, Stop Domestic Violence Ireland. There's lots of organisations out there that could help people because it's too late for Jennifer. But unfortunately, 
you know, we didn't have the, what we have now in the documentation that was released by Fianna Fáil today that's shown a clear pathway how to protect others in the future. Um, she did try and get him out of her life, didn't she? She did. Jennifer had finally ended the relationship that, that week. Um, and we had, myself and Jennifer had a conversation on the phone on the Friday um, about how our life could be different. And she was very clear that that was it. She had removed his belongings from her home. She had ended the relationship finally. And that, I would, would imagine, for any victim of domestic violence is a very difficult thing to do. And that's when they're most at risk. And that's when you most need your family and your support. But Jennifer had that already. But she didn't reach out that final step that was needed um, to make sure that she stayed safe. But she had ended the relationship um, that, that week. So they weren't, as we, we found out very quickly on, it was our ex-partner. Um, so he, they weren't together. Yeah. But he wasn't happy, obviously, that the relationship had been ended. Yeah, and I suppose us as a family, we, we you know, there's a, a saying that, you know, if I can't have you, nobody can. And, and that's how, that's what we're left with, that Jennifer had ended that relationship. And it was like, well, if you're ending the relationship with me, there won't be another one. And, and set out to do what he did and planned to do what he did that day. Um, and that's, that's all that we have left. We have a different life than we had before Jennifer's death. Our children have a different life before um, Jennifer's death to what they have now. Um, and us as a, as a family unit are broken. You know, and we don't want to see other families to have to go through what we're going through and will continue to go through because Gavin may have been given a life sentence, but we also have a life sentence, one that won't have parole. We will never get Jennifer back. Her children will never see her again. But that's the system that we have in this country and that's why it needs to be changed. And I know one of the things that you found very difficult was after Jennifer's murder was listening to her children being interviewed by a guardie and... I suppose, hearing for the first time what her children had witnessed. That, that was a very difficult part for myself and my sister and particularly uh, my brother who accompanied them to a lot of, of, the, of the interviews and to hear for the first time of the smaller little incidents that were taking place that led to bigger incidents when they would tell you, you know, that he put his ma their mammy to sleep on the floor or they were locked in the bedroom or she liked a candle so he threw it out the window. All of those little things that you don't want to hear you know, but unfortunately, the children were afraid to speak because they too lived in fear um, of what they had witnessed. And it was, that was a difficult part for us. And it's a difficult part to sit some days and at when, their when our children ask, you know, when is my mommy coming back? Or I just want my mommy back. Or when is she coming back out of the ground? Or what is she going to eat now that she can't eat food anymore? They're questions that we have to live with, you know, and questions that those questions as they get older are going to get tougher and more difficult to answer because they'll understand more. And children now have access to the internet and they can see, they can type in her name, they, can, they see firsthand the reports from the news articles and that kind of stuff, so they know what happens. They know that, as, that she died an awful violent death at, at but, his hands. Yeah, and, and they, they know that, you know, because they're, they can read um, and they've seen it. And we as a family have tried to support them through that process and ensure that they get the, the wraparound supports that they need to ensure that they're safe and they kept, they're kept safe mm -hmm. and that they have a future that's bright for them. Um, because they were affected too. You saw changes in their personalities over the year that she was with him. Yeah, like we would have seen both of our children 
um, their personality and their manner and their, the way they go about their day is completely different because they don't have that fear. They have that safe environment now. They have their bedrooms, they have their toys, they have their structure, they have their routine, they have their GAA clubs, they have their boxing clubs. They have all of the things to keep them busy and to finally be children and to, to have a life that they deserve. And to feel safe. And safe. Um, her killer had a violent past. He had a conviction, didn't he, for abusing and assaulting a previous partner and her mother. But you weren't aware of this and Jennifer wasn't aware of this. Yeah, when, when Jennifer and Gavin got together, um, the obvious question you ask your, your baby sister is, how, how did you meet and where did he come from? You know, a little bit like, you know, when you're on blind date or something. And she, she was adamant that she knew he had come from Spain because that's the story that he told her and it's a story that he told us. And it was only when we were sitting in court and the detective got up and he was reading out his previous, previous convictions that we heard it from the horse's mouth as such that this man had previous convictions for a knife crime to an ex-partner. And you kind of ask yourself, well, why was this man out in the first place? You know, he was given a, a three-year sentence and the last year of that sentence was suspended. And if that last year hadn't have been suspended and he had done the time that he was convicted of doing, him and Jennifer would have never met. And that's the part that, as a family, you know, eats you up inside that the, there's a justice system there and it works to, to a degree. But if you're given a time to serve for a very violent crime, then you should do that crime mm. and you should do that time. Uh, Pauline, the uh, Garda superintendent uh, spoke uh, outside the court after the sentencing and he he spoke directly to victims and he said, you are being told that you won't be believed. You are being told that you are not valued. You're being told if you come forward, you will be judged. Um, but please do come forward. We will believe you and we will help you. As somebody who's, I suppose, spoken out about your own experience with domestic uh, abuse, do you relate to this? I do very much so. And just first of all, I want to say, you know, my sincere sympathy to Jason and his family on, on the dreadful and, and senseless loss of their sister, Jennifer. Um, but his story, and as he's just so eloquently told the whole story, is so commonplace. It's, it's just, it's dreadful. And I do relate to what the superintendent said. But I think we have to understand that um, the perpetrator of domestic violence practically grooms the person, the victim or the, the survivor um, and indeed her family and those around them. I've come to, to, to believe that because so many people have come to me and talked to me about their circumstances um, where they've got out in an abusive situation. But some have actually told me that their own families didn't believe them because the, the, the perpetrator had actually more or less presented this image of himself as, you know, the good guy and, and it, it was her that was at fault. And he almost had her believing as well that, you know, that the issues were, were her fault. And um, so there's, there's, there's reasons, many reasons why, why women don't come forward as soon as they should. And some of them are because they fear they won't be believed, but some of it is because they fear for their own lives or they fear for the lives of their children. And, you know, they've, they've been threatened and they think, well, look, I'll put up with it for the sake of keeping my children safe. So, but we do need many, many more people to come out and talk about it and encourage others to do the same. Yeah, because he also did say to uh, any uh, victim out there, come forward early. Don't wait until it gets to crisis point. What would help 
uh, victims to come forward earlier? There's a number of things. Now, I think education is really important. For many over the years, they thought domestic violence was was physical violence. While it can be, a, a lot of it can be controlled. And generally, a relationship like that, a toxic relationship, starts with the controlling element. It doesn't start with being, you know domestic violence or physical violence, I should say, right from the word go. So it's it's letting people know what a, a healthy relationship looks like. Um, as opposed to a toxic relationship and recognising the warning signs early and, and getting out of that relationship as early as possible. Um, but it, it's also, there's a lot of other things as well. I mean, it's the fact that there aren't enough refuge places for women who do need to flee and need somewhere to get to quickly um, and, and to get out of a, a situation like that. I think we've only about one third of the places we should have, um, according to the Istanbul Convention. So we need to address that. We need to put more supports in place for women who need to get out of, the, of situations. But our court services need a lot of work as well. I mean, the sentencing is ridiculous. In many cases, perpetrators get maybe months after a sentence, half of it is suspended, and maybe a couple of years. It's not sufficient. It's not a deterrent. So we need longer sentences that are reflective of the crime that has been committed against uh, the woman in most cases and oftentimes her children as well. Uh, Jim, I'm so conscious when we have this conversation here that we often talk about uh, the victim or the survivor and what they can do. You know, we put a lot of uh, responsibility on their shoulders, come forward, seek help, get out. We don't talk so much about the perpetrators and what we should be doing to try and change a culture out there that, as you say, sort of allows for this level of abuse um, against mainly women, although, of yeah. course, we know it does happen to men also. Listen, we need to be much tougher on perpetrators. Like, when you listen to what Jason said there in terms of Jennifer's murder, he already had stabbed an ex-partner and her mother. So that's a warning sign. He should have got a much stronger sentence than what he got. And had he been in prison, as Jason said, he wouldn't have been out to form a relationship with Jennifer. It's remarkable the similarities, though, Kira. I also spoke to Claire Lott, whose daughter Nadine was brutally murdered in 2019. And like Jennifer Poole, Claire Lott found herself with her daughter in a relationship with a guy she was trying to get away from, with a guy who had inflicted violence upon her. Uh, she was murdered in her home, uh, Nadine Lott was. And as well as that, her murderer had previous convictions. So like, we, we can learn a lot from these terrible stories that we're hearing. So it's so important to listen to victims but we need to learn what are the trigger points and we need to figure out the people that need to be targeted. And, and are we not that... learning then, Jim? Well, I, I, the most important thing, like the reason I suppose we're having a discussion today is that Fianna Fáil launched this policy document on tackling violence against women. The best decision we made is that we decided we were going to focus on victims. We listened to Jason, we listened to Claire Lott. It's very interesting to hear Pauline speaking this evening as well. The stories are very similar and they all are telling the same sort of detail to us. So we need to listen to them. But now having listened to them, we need to act. And that's no one simple solution, but certainly in the criminal justice field, we need tougher sentences and we need people who are violent, who display violence in relationships or elsewhere to be put in prison. We also need to look at the culture in which we're bringing up younger guys and the influence that uh, widespread pornography is having on the internet and the manner by which young boys are developing to learn about sexuality from the internet and women being presented in a very submissive and controlled way. So like society has a responsibility for that as well and certainly in terms of supports and this is something that I know Jason has emphasised uh, significantly is a, a, a register 
of domestic violence offenders. We have it in sex offenders that when, if you're convicted of a sex offence, the Gardaí have a sex offenders uh, intelligence and management unit. Similarly, the Gardaí need to have a unit that deals with people who have committed violence within relationships. And if we They have this that, in the UK, don't they? They have Claire's Law in the UK. Yeah, they have it in the UK. And listen, I can understand that obviously you, could, you and I couldn't just access it to find out about other people in the community. But certainly it should be information that the Gardaí have, and there should be a responsibility on the Gardaí to inform people who are in a new relationship with somebody who has been convicted just, of violent offence in the I past to tell them. I wonder how that would have helped your uh, sister, Jason. I think it would have helped a lot, to be honest. Um, I think if we had a register like this in this country, that Jennifer would still be alive today. Because as Jim pointed out, Jennifer's murderer had a previous conviction. So it would have given the opportunity for Jennifer or a guard to come because there was incidents where the guards were called to Jennifer's home over the time of that year because neighbours had reported incidents. Um, that this is the where, guards, they, where they heard yeah. sort of abuse being perpetrated against Jennifer within her home by yeah. Gavin Murphy. And, and guards would have arrived. And if that register was there, guards would have accessed the register and informed. You know, you can't hold somebody's hand and make them do something, but you can inform them and allow them to make that decision themselves. But that, that control piece, that takes time. You know, eight days or 10 days of an emergency protection order doesn't give that. You know, as, as I said earlier on today, you know, in, in relation to going to a court, for, for Jennifer, and the controlling relationship she was in, if she had to spend the day in court, that, that evening would have been a, a very difficult evening because she couldn't explain where she was for that day. As if she had gone to court to try and get an emergency barring order against Gavin Murphy, she would have had to spend a day in court. And you're saying, actually, when you're in that situation, that simply isn't possible. It isn't possible. And that's why I think as part of the document and the discussions that we had with Jim and the Fianna Fáil party, that when, when legislation is implemented in this area, that superintendents and inspectors in Garda stations could be able to, when you bring the evidence and you bring the information to them, that they would be able to make that decision, that they'd be able to give you the temporary protection order or barren order or safety order that you need. So you don't have to go through the process of the courts. Yes, if you need to extend it, it's something that may have to happen because it can only maybe happen at a certain period of time. But at least that it would be easier for my sister to walk five minutes down the road and walk into her guard station and be able to deal with what was happening rather than have to spend a day in court. And chances are, if you didn't have enough evidence or you didn't have enough with you to explain why that situation was in case, you might have walked out the court system without that barren order or safety order. I wonder, is there a real difficulty here, um, Pauline, with sentencing? Because domestic violence assaults are just dealt with under ordinary assault legislation or serious assault legislation. It's not sort of seen as a stand-alone crime. You know, there's not sort of an extra punishment when this sort of abuse or violence takes place in, you know, a relationship, what is meant to be a loving relationship and everything that goes with that. Mm. No, it's just treated as an assault. Um, now, I mean, it, if it's treated as a, a, a Section 3 or Section 4 assault, the sentencing can be up to maybe 10 or 12 years. But frequently it's not. It's only two, three years. So it definitely needs to be looked at. So whether it needs to be strengthened in, 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 by changing the, 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 the name of the, of, of the assault, you know, to a domestic violence or just basically increasing the sentencing, something needs to be done. But I also think as well, 
that where, you know, there's a barring order in place against someone, whether there's a conviction or not, that other courts should have access to that information as well. Because what I'm hearing from many uh, mothers is that the, the perpetrator is looking for access to the children. And that isn't taken into account in that court, in the, in, in the family court. Um, so the mother is ending up terrified and has to, be, has to let her children go with their father, who has been violent to her and possibly them as well. And that's not taken into account. And I think that's totally unfair. And it's just another way of controlling the relationship as well. And I think that should be, should be looked at as well. Um, Jason, you said you were a very uh, close uh, family and I, I did speak to you before we uh, came on air this evening. And it's very clear that, you know, your parents and your siblings and uh, Jennifer's uh, lovely two children are very close. Given what happened. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. to her given how she died how do you as a family sort of cope with that and, and live with that on a daily basis it's very difficult to be honest um, it, I think we, we kind of lived one life before Jennifer um, died and we're living a completely different one you know there's days where you don't even want to get out of bed in the morning there's days where you know there's something might happen or a song might come on the radio or for me as a for me personally, I have to drive by our, our workplace every day. I sit in my workplace looking into her workplace and now looking into her memorial garden. And there's just a constant, you know, legacy, yes, but there's a constant battle in your own head, you know, of what if, what if this was in place? What if that was in place? What if things had been different? What if she had a spoke out, you know? And I think that's the key message for me is that it is okay not to be okay. Mm. It is okay to ask for help and it is okay to speak to your friends and your family. And if neighbours are in, in listening to this kind of stuff in a household, that they pick up the phone and they contact before it's too late for somebody else. It's too late for Jennifer. Mm. And you know, we don't want as a family to, people, to see people suffer the way we're suffering, being dragged through court systems, you know, being, being, having to go and identify your sister 
you know, having to sort out our clothes, having to, to do the practical things that you don't ever want to do and that no mother or, or father should ever have to do. And we've had to do that and other families have had to do that and we don't want anybody else to have to do that again. All right, uh, Jason Poole, thank you so much uh, for coming in and speaking to us this evening. We really uh, appreciate it. Just to let you know, you can contact Helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash Helplines. My thanks uh, to Jason and to Pauline. Jim is staying with me uh, after the break. Fresh controversy as top civil servants get their pay restored. Do stay with us. Welcome back. High-earning public sector workers are set to see increases of up to 15% in their salary. Thousands of employees had their pay cut under emergency legislation brought in after the 2008 financial crash. It's been confirmed that those on the highest salaries are now finally having their pay restored, meaning higher pay for those already on €150,000 or more. Is the timing great? No, it's not. But the legal advice that is very, very clear. Uh, we're a government who will stand over uh, the agreements that we make. We're not in the position of just ripping up agreements. Uh, kind of one would imagine what that would look like when we're in the process of actually uh, trying to negotiate a new public sector pay agreement. Fianna Fáil TD Jim O'Callaghan is still with me here in the panel and I'm also joined now by Irish Daily Mail Group Executive Editor John Lee and Kerry Independent TD Michael Healy-Ray. You're all very welcome to uh, the programme. Um, I'm just going to start with you, John. This is the 1% of civil servants who haven't had their pay fully restored since those fempy cuts uh, way back in, in the middle of the recession. It's never going to be a good time, is it? to increase the pay of people on over 150,000 in the public sector. But right now, the optics are awful. No, they're, they're unlucky with the timing, but um, I, you know, they have control over the explanation. I think the explanation is rather condescending now to the public. This, it, it, there's an increasing tendency to cite legal uh, advice that we don't see for um, government action. That is... You know, I was around Leinster House covering the financial crash. We were, we were constantly told we can't do this. We can't cut civil service pensions. We can't cut their pay. We can't do this with the banks because of pending legal action. And that was all overcome. A government, very simply, and most of the public know this now, can override legislation to by bringing in new legislation. And they can do it very quickly. And they've proven that during COVID. They've proved it during the financial crash. If people are getting a pay rise, the government can come out and be honest about it. They deserve the pay rise. Some of them, are, most of them seem to be doctors. Um, they've worked very hard for, for the country during a pandemic. And if they're due a pay rise, let them have it. But don't give us this, you know, uh, the Attorney General, and we can't tell you what the Attorney General's advice is because that's also not true. Okay, now, just to be clear, I'm just thinking of the line that you might take if the government came out today and said, look, 
People earning over 150,000, yes, it's a lot, but they deserve this money to be restored. They deserve an extra 10 or 15%. Would you really be sitting here tonight saying to me, John Lee, you know what, fair enough, they do? No, but they, but but to, to give us this this uh, redundant argument that it's legal advice across the board, which is clearly a, a, a line that has been agreed within government because all a, free, a number of ministers have said it today, it's not quite, it's not accurate. So whatever the explanation is for it, it's time this way. But to say to people, we can't <clears throat> stop this. You think not, they can? I think the government has said, they have they not? Uh, of course they can. Jim McCallan, that they can't override this legislation. Well, there was legislation enacted in 2017. Kira uh, Sinn Féin was in opposition at the time. Fianna Fáil was in opposition at the time. Yet we both supported it. And what the legislation said is that the remaining FEMPI cuts would be reversed and it would be done in such a way that the last group the people who uh, earned the most, that their cuts would be reversed on the 1st of July 2022. Listen, if this had happened, if, if the legislation had said 1st of July 2021, it wouldn't have been a story. But I can understand why it is a story now and the timing isn't good, as Minister O'Brien said. It's not good timing. But I suppose we need to look at the but principle of it. Do we believe that FEMPI should be unwound or not? And I Notwithstanding think, what anybody yeah, let's, just, let's just look at the principle of it. Do we think that FEMPI should be unwound or not for all the public sector workers who had cuts imposed to them as a result of the financial crisis in 2008? And you obviously think My yes. My view is that we should. Yeah, all FEMPI should be unwound. And trade unions agree with me. And I think all the political parties agree with me. But I think the issue is because it's happening now, it's perceived as being given them a pay rise, when in fact what it is is reversing a cut. But listen, the people who are suffering out there today, their protection is going to come from the government, not by stopping this, but by government putting in place measures to ensure that people who are suffering because of rising costs and rising inflation are cushioned from that. So that's where the focus of government attention should be. And I don't think the fact that there's 1% remaining to get the FEMPI cuts reversed, that stopping that is going to... So you don't think somebody upon. who's on 500,000 within the civil service getting a, you know, a pay increase or pay restoration of somewhere maybe between... 50,000 and 75,000, that that's... I don't think there's anyone in the civil service on 500,000. I'm not aware of anyone in the civil service on 500,000, but let's just deal with it as a principle. And the or within the public service, okay. including the HSE, there is. Well, you would have to be in the HSE to in get HSE. that type of money. Okay, I don't even yeah. think the HSE rise to that level of income. But listen, I fully accept you can present this in a very negative way from the point of view of the government. But it was in the legislation. Now, John's right, we could pass new legislation and say, okay, we're going to drag it out until the... 1st of July 2023. So you could do that? You could do that, but of course what could happen then is that one of the recipients or one of the people who've been imposed, had these cuts imposed upon them, could say, listen, these were introduced for financial emergency measures. The emergency is gone. And in fact, it's very clear the only reason that it's been extended is because of the fact that it's not politically convenient for the government. And I think government shouldn't make decisions on the basis of political convenience. OK, Michael Healy-Ray, did you vote, first of all, for those FEMPI cuts to be reversed or for the pay to be restored? Did you vote well, for that? No, my, my view always on this was that you have to be sensible about this. The government, present and past, have been proven, in my opinion, to hide behind uh, legal advice. Okay, and just, I just that's a clear, yes. very clear question. Yes. yes or no, did you vote for the restoration of the pay? No, at any time, my uh, understanding at all times was that we had to do what we had to do at the time, right? And yes, 
uh, I, I would have great concerns over what is after happening now today. And if we'll just let me make this... No, I'm just I'm still yes. not clear, because this is, this is really important to people at home, because as Jim has said, Sinn Féin did vote for the restoration Fianna of Tay, Fianna Fáil did, and the Labour Party did, and you were all in opposition. Yes. Did you, yes. Michael Hillary, but, vote but it, yes My or recollection no? of that is that we would have all been of the same word at that time. That Probably. would be my memory of it. So you but, did vote yes, for this? I would think so. Okay. But what I would say to you is... Uh, in answer to this question of what has happened today, last night at half past 10, I got a phone call from an elderly lady, 85, Mary, in County Kerry. And the word she said to me was, I'm very worried. She wasn't aware of this now today. And she said, I'm very worried. And I said, what are you worried about, Mary? And she said, I'm so worried, she said, at the cost of living. I'm so worried about running the house, heating it, and just living, she said. And I listened very carefully and closely to that lady. And all I could think of last night was a person at that age shouldn't have to be worried. And she voiced very clearly to me her concerns. And all I was thinking then today uh, with this story out there now is how does a person like that feel when they hear that uh, a person's pay is is being restored and it and th th there could be on thousands and thousands of viewers. But just, I suppose, just to be but, fair, I mean, these people earning in excess of 150,000 are having their pay restored and that's going to sit uncomfortably with a lot of people. But TDs also had their pay restored, did they not? Well, yes. Under Fempe. Well, uh, I, I, of course they would have had, but... So you would have had your pay restored this year too? Yeah, well, the same as everybody else would have had, yeah. but it's not at that type of money. And I mean... Well, a TD salary's gone up to 100,000. It would be 100,000, yes. And if we take our tax off it, I presume it's about 50 or 60,000 euros a year. Of course, that is exactly what it would be. So I'm just thinking of, of, of Mary that. that you talk about at home. Yes. I'm sure she would be deeply uncomfortable too to look at the fact that your salary was restored this year from 98,000 yes. to 100,000. And today, remember, was a day when I was outside the gates of the Dáil meeting people who were protesting. Uh, or, uh, they were childcare workers and they were protesting. They feel that they have been overlooked for fund funding and they are providing a very essential and important role in our society, taking care of our children. And they had to come to Dublin today to fight for their funding and to run their shows because with ever-increasing inflation... OK, just, I just want to stick as much to this no, issue. Yes. Do, you think it's, do you think the government should enact new legislation now then? But isn't that what I said at the very beginning? I feel that they're hiding behind the legal advice that they got. I would love to know... They said they got legal advice. I'd love to know the content of that legal advice. Exactly what were they told? We haven't been told that. All we were told was, or oh, we looked at it from a legal point of view and we were told we can't touch it. All right. But I would like to know why. Strip that down and explain okay. it to us. And well, I actually, believe the public would deserve to know. Uh, we're joined online by law lecturer Jennifer Kavanagh from South East Technological uh, University. You're very welcome, uh, Jennifer. Is the government bound by this legislation? And what would happen if they didn't uh, pay this um, pay increase or pay restoration? Well, of course, the government is bound by legislation because that is the product of what comes out of the Oireachtas. And if the government is not going to adhere to the legislation that it passed through the Oireachtas, then the government is breaking the law. So if they do feel that there is a significant issue with this pay increase, they can amend that legislation, but if you're going to go into talks with other unions, which they're doing at the moment, about a cost of living increase, new partnership agreements, if you haven't abided by the agreement you've already negotiated, why would unions believe that the agreement they're going to get out of this will actually be abided by? And we just need to look across the water when you see governments 
not following through with what they've actually agreed. And do you also believe, Jennifer, that those uh, people who are entitled now by July 1st to get this pay restoration, if they didn't get it, that they would be able to mount a legal challenge that could potentially be successful? Well, they could certainly try. They could certainly go under legitimate expectation, equality. If everyone else has gotten the pay rise from firefighters to TDs to nurses, why would they be the ones that are picked out? And if the argument of the government is that they want to bring everyone back to the way they were before the financial emergency came in, remember there are other people that have not gotten any form of restoration, which would be pensioners, and they certainly do need any bit of money that was taken off them in the crash to be take, to be returned to their pay packets now. Um, this does make things very difficult for the government because they are now trying to negotiate a new public sector pay deal. How does this uh, influence those discussions? Um, I'm not sure that it does. You, you, you know, they're they're holding off, and there's a, there's been a, a cancellation of the talks, and they're going to go back to them. But um, I, I think ultimately they will come to some some form of agreement on pay. They, they have said ultimately that the union seems to be miscalculating what they've offered. That there's a one percent pay rise this year, one percent next year, in total that'll come to around seven percent. The unions are arguing that right now we're almost at nine percent uh, inflation. By the end of the year, it could be eleven percent. So the government are also presenting something of an incoherent argument because Leo Varadkar this morning was saying, in some ways, there's a, there's a tough time coming in the winter, but we're 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 in a very good place now. So that we've full employment, we've huge tax take. He was very anxious to make, make it clear that we've a lot of money coming in. So then to go back to the unions and say, okay, we can, we can give these pay rises to higher paid civil servants. Yes, we've got a huge full, full employment and we've got huge tax intake and then deny them those pay rises isn't a, co isn't a coherent argument, nor is it a sustainable argument. And one would expect there will be resolution of, the, of these pay pay demands soon, probably yeah. not to the extent the unions want to see, but, um, you know, um, we, see, we see in Britain, we've had, we've had widespread uh, transport strikes. There's no threat of that here, here yet. Okay, it is difficult, um, I suppose, Michael Hillary, for the government to go in and negotiate an agreement with the public sector unions if those unions see an agreement like this ripped up because uh, it suddenly doesn't suit politically. Of course it is, but the one thing that we do want, we do want negotiations. We want people to trash things out. We don't want a, a situation where we would have strikes of any type because people are struggling enough at present. Uh, and could you imagine tomorrow morning, for instance, if our public transport was to go stopping or be endangered? Or, right. we, we can't allow anything like that to happen. So the government have to negotiate. They have to try and be fair and be honest and equitable with the people right. that they're dealing with. OK, we're going to have to um, leave it there. But just before the break, some news about ourselves. Uh, Virgin Media News has been honoured at this year's Justice Media Awards, which recognises journalistic coverage of justice, the legal system and legal issues. Our courts reporter, Deborah Naylor, won the overall prize of the court reporting broadcast category. And our very own senior producer, Sean Dunn, presenter, Claire Brock, and camera operator, Joe McKenna, from The Tonight Show, were awarded a special merit award for this programme's coverage of surrogacy issues. My thanks to Jennifer, to John, to Michael and to Jim this evening. Next, UNICEF Ireland on children fleeing war and facing famine.
Well, at least 1,000 people are dead following a powerful earthquake in Afghanistan. The magnitude 6.1 quake struck a remote region near the Pakistan border. At least 1,500 people have been injured. Officials say the death toll is likely to rise. The Taliban has asked for international help, although many agencies left when the group took control of the country last year. UNICEF Ireland Executive Director Peter Power is here with me now, and he's just back uh, from Moldova. But uh, Peter, you're very welcome to the programme. I know you were in Afghanistan in March and you were in the area very close to where this um, earthquake took place. And I suppose you have to think about an earthquake taking place in the context of what life has been like there since the Taliban took over last August. I mean, almost the entire population is living below the poverty line. That's right. You you know, it's hard to think of a country worse prepared for a catastrophe of this nature. When we were there, the levels of poverty were literally extreme. As you say, over 90% of the people living before, uh, beneath the poverty line. Half the country are food insecure. Almost 2 million uh, children not having enough food to eat, severely, acutely malnourished. And then on, on top of that, this. Uh, and the reports we're hearing uh, from Gosht and uh, particularly Guyan, where many thousands of houses appear to have been destroyed. The houses we saw there were mud huts, especially in the rural areas, uh, and very, very um, unable to withstand uh, earthquake-type conditions. So I expect that a lot of those fell, and it was in the middle of the night. We expect casualties to to rise, but we've we've got aid in there quickly. We we actually saw large amounts of humanitarian aid when we were in the country, so we're able to get get into that area pretty quickly today. And um, you speak about the number of children there um, living with severe malnutrition, and you have some new figures um, looking at that. Global hunger crisis has pushed one child into severe malnutrition every minute in 15 crisis hit countries. It's absolutely frightening. It is. It is. But we're particularly, we're worried about a number of countries around the world. A a lot of factors at play at the moment. A lot of crises around the world, as you know, Ukraine, Afghanistan. But we're particularly concerned now about the Horn of Africa. The Horn of Africa is uh, Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, a couple of other countries. uh, And they've experienced two years now of absolutely no rain not able to harvest anything. They're traditionally food insecure. Somalia itself depends 92% of its its grain comes from Ukraine. That's obviously blocked now. Uh, And the numbers of severely acutely malnourished children uh, has risen rapidly in the last number of months. And it's the rate of increase that concerns us greatly. It's 380,000 children now are severely acutely malnourished. And unfortunately, the reality is that unless all these children receive urgent medical help. Many of them will die. So we're facing a real crisis in the Horn of Africa. We had one in 2010. Many thousands of children lost their lives. We're facing a similar crisis just now and we're, we're shipping in aid as fast as we can. And I'm just, I suppose, wondering if when the world's gaze is on Ukraine and what's happening there, and that's completely understandable, does that mean that the focus isn't on the Horn of Africa to the extent that it should be? Yeah, well, it's amazing. As I said, they are connected crises. You know, if if the the breadbasket of the world, uh, Ukraine as so-called, uh, if it was able to export its Ukraine, get it out of Odessa, which we were close to Odessa last week, if we were able to get that out into Somalia, the situation wouldn't be quite as bad. It would still be bad because people depend on local crops. They've all failed uh, consistently now for two years. That in turn linked to climate change. So we're, we're facing a complex crisis, but at the root of it is endemic 
uh, poverty, high levels of uh, food insecurity traditionally. And as I said, over 300,000 children uh, are now facing a real catastrophe. It's a very worrying situation. It's absolutely uh, heartbreaking. Um, you mentioned Odessa there and you are just back this week. You were in Palanca uh, in Moldova and obviously uh, Moldova has taken in um, many refugees uh, from Ukraine. Are families still fleeing there and are there many children coming across into uh, Moldova unsupervised? Yeah, uh, Palanca is right on the border between Ukraine and uh, Moldova. And yes, right on the border where we saw them, they, they, they would arrive corralled into uh, groups, they'd have to wait there, papers process, and then the, the barrier would lift and you'd see the people who walked with them as they made this lonely, unfortunate journey across across the, uh, the, the, the border itself. And, you know, you could see it in people's eyes, you know, fear, trepidation, real apprehension, and in the eyes of children, trauma and exhaustion. A lot of children have seen terrible uh, things and immediately they hit the border, they need immediate humanitarian assistance. That's absolutely critical, not just in Moldova, but in all, but in all the border countries. So they're, they're still coming across. And I would say, Kiro, what we did hear on the ground again and again is the real worry that if the Russian advance reaches Odessa, uh, thereby cutting off all of the southern part of Ukraine, making Ukraine a landlocked country, that there will be a mass exodus from Odessa and, and Moldova is the first country there. So you're talking about on top of the 400,000 people who've come into Moldova, you know, we've taken 40 in Ireland, 400,000 people have spilled over, another half a million, 500,000 could come in, creating a secondary humanitarian crisis. So we've, we set up uh, refugee centres, uh, reception centres, in that border area to deal with that potential crisis, along with the crisis that has been unfolding over the last number of months. Uh, very briefly, you would have real child protection issues for those children, wouldn't you? Yeah, child protection is obviously at the heart of, of what we do. And the real concern is unaccompanied minors, separated children being exploited. The, the regrettable thing is that some of the first people into places like this are the child traffickers trying to get vulnerable children out. And we've got okay. child protection people. We've met child protection officers on the border looking out for this very type of okay. activity and stopping it. And thankfully, it has been suppressed. Happy to hear that. Uh, Peter Power, thank you for your You're time. Welcome. And thank you to all of our guests. That's it from us. Uh, our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. But from tonight, uh, VMTV uh, on Instagram and for the team here, good night and take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.